Today's sermon comes to you from the Oasis in Wysox, Pennsylvania. The sermon is titled, The Shepherd Within the Psalm. All right. Are you ready for some word tonight? I'm excited. I want to meet you in the Old Testament songbook. The book of Psalms. I want to try to introduce you tonight, not only to our Lord Jesus and his finished work, but I want to introduce him that way through the book that would have been the most common book of theology to the everyday person in first century. And what I mean by that is Psalms. In an era where there was no printing press, in an era where people didn't carry Bibles under their arms, and in an era where most adults were illiterate, Jesus was an anomaly. That's the understatement of the year. Of course, he was an anomaly in every single way possible, but in one very peculiar way is that Jesus could read. We know this because in Luke 4, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. And no, I don't believe that he just received divine inspiration in the moment and suddenly figured out how to read. Somewhere along the way, he had to learn that. But most people, most of his contemporaries did not know how to read, didn't have the opportunity to do so, and even if they had, there wouldn't have been a lot to read, which is odd in our world where there's plenty to look at and read. But they did sing. Maybe not exactly like we just sang, and maybe not in the same style, and certainly not with all the instrumentation, but they sang. They sang worship songs to God. They sang lament. They sang pain. They sang praise, they sang worship. If you've ever read the book of Psalms, you'll notice that it's full of the gamut of human emotion. That sometimes it's mad at God, and sometimes it's scared of God, and sometimes it's questioning God, and sometimes it's enamored of God, and sometimes it's confused by God. But that's because that's the way that we are, if we're being honest. Sometimes we're scared, and sometimes we're confused, and sometimes we're lost, and sometimes we wonder if he's even watching us any longer. But those songs in the book of Psalms portray the theology of Israel. It says to God, here's we are, there you are, we want to try to meet somewhere in the middle. And so most of the theology of the Judaism that we kind of think we know from the first century of Jesus was learned by the average everyday person through their songs because we learn songs easier than we learn to read. Well, you got to work to learn to read, but you don't have to work to learn songs. You just hear them a few times until the melody gets in your heart. Maybe the lyrics even start to come out. You'll notice the lyrics even start to come out and you didn't even try to learn the song. And most of the time your lyrics are wrong. You're just singing nonsense words, but you're convinced they're right. That's okay because they're right to you and you're the only one in the car anyhow when you're singing them. But, But that would have been the way that the theology was presented. And most of your people in the first century Judaism, though they couldn't read, they didn't have the scrolls, they knew how to listen. And there was an audit, they had an audible version of learning that is even greater mostly than our visual source of learning. And so when they heard the songs, they heard the theology. When they heard the hum of how the song would have begun, they would have known because we hear the first line and it takes us deeper into the song, they might have known where it was going. I want to meet in Psalm 23, the most famous Psalm, and I know this is low-hanging fruit, man. You go, what are you going to preach now? Let's just preach the most famous chapter in the Bible, right? I mean, the only other thing we could have done is maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. We could have just done John 3.16. Maybe we'll do John 3.16 Sunday morning. Let's do the two 
most common passages in the Bible. Boy, this guy came in here and swung hard, didn't he? Just, but, but I'm doing this for a very specific reason, because in John 10, 11, Jesus told his disciples, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And Jesus is contrasting himself to bad shepherds. He says, everyone who's come before me is a thief and a robber. Uh, I'm the door. I'm the way you come in and the way you go out. And, and, and in me you find pasture. And Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. But he adds a qualifier, which would have been unheard of. A good shepherd would actually die for his sheep. The reason I say that's unheard of is because there's no shepherd in the world that would die for his sheep. You own a bunch of sheep out in the, on the pasture side and a, a wolf comes to destroy the sheep. You, you're going to try to kill the wolf, but you don't let the wolf kill you. That doesn't do the rest of the sheep any good. I mean, who's going to watch the sheep tomorrow if the shepherd gives up his life? So Jesus throws the ultimate curveball in John 10 when he says a good shepherd would actually give his life for the sheep because Jesus is trying to elevate himself above any shepherd they'd ever met. They knew a lot of shepherds. It was a shepherd lifestyle that they led. But Jesus goes, I'm unlike any you've ever met because I'll actually put myself between you and harm's way. I will step in so that whatever is on its way to attack you can attack me first. Now, we can take that good shepherd Jesus and easily insert him into anything about shepherds then, and we can see that he's better in every possible way. Let's start by doing that with Psalm 23. I want to read all six verses. We'll come back and work through this passage a little bit as we go, but I want to read it first, and then I want to lay something out for you. Um, as we Before we read, I, I just want to I just want to tell you, I try to really, in these moments, there's a lot of things that starts to come out and, and, and reveals itself in these environments that I try to listen to the Spirit on that might not be always right down the road of good hermit, uh, homiletics, point A, point B, point C, stay there. I like to run a little bit um, in doing so because you're unique. Like, you aren't the room I study in. Okay, so as I hear the Holy Spirit say, this is what we want to talk about tonight, you're not in that room. You're in that room in the realm of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit, I don't know how much he chooses to know about who would be here tonight, but I choose to believe that our Father isn't caught off guard. Like, he didn't look up just now and go, oh, boy, so-and-so showed up. Well, let's, let's switch it up a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I think he's a little more on point than that. Um, but he doesn't always tell me. He doesn't say, hey, so-and-so's coming tonight, and I got something you need to say to them. So I, I don't operate in that, and I'm not, in the, I'm not, in, and I'm not throwing stones at this, but I don't, I'm not in the prophetic. I don't walk around the room and tell someone what's going to happen to you next week or speak something into your life. Um, that if someone else has that gift, as long as it points to Jesus first, I amen it. Um, but I do, I, 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 I do have a bit of a finger near the pulse of what is happening in the church in regards to grace and the finished work because the Father's put us in a lot of places. And I, I'm feeling a tug in my spirit more and more back to the root system of my Christianity. Um, when I pray, 
when my morning prayers happen, sometimes it's prayer books, sometimes it's a scripture from the Word, sometimes it's a little bit of somebody's translation from the Greek or whatever, but a lot of times the Holy Spirit pulls me back to the Psalms. So just read that Psalm slowly and out loud, and especially the parts you don't agree with right now, especially the parts that don't pray your prayer that don't say what you're wanting to say because what I want to say is often rote and repetitious and a bit lazy. But what I don't want to say, I have to pay attention to so that when I read it and it's not coming from my heart, this is why I think sometimes we ought to get back to creedal confessional Christianity so that we're confronted by the creeds of our faith and we can confront the parts of it that we don't necessarily agree with, but that we can wrestle over something bigger than ourselves and see what happens because those roots run deep into the, the fabric of the church. And so a lot of the Psalms have become the roots of my prayer. And I, I, I feel the Holy Spirit pulling me back into the root system, but away from stage persona Christianity. And, and that's the only way I know to say that is because I've spent enough time working on the visual image of, of preaching or of what it means to be up here and build something and do something that'll make people want to come back. And there has to be a bit of that. I know there's a little bit of that element and it has to be there, but there has to be a tension as well between that and, and digging into that root system of our faith, God give us a people who are more concerned with what's growing beneath the surface than what's growing above the surface. And I, I, I don't know that we don't have that flipped. Like we're very cognizant of how the plant looks and the fruit it's putting out but not as cognizant of the root and how deep it runs into the soil of our faith and grabs hold of who we are in Christ. And if we could flip that dynamic, maybe we would be less concerned with making sure we look the part and more concerned with knowing that we're rooted into the river that runs deep, deep in our soul. And it might free us from the slavery of the persona system that's been built with screens where, and I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the slavery to screens, but the slavery to seeing ourselves through the eyes of other people because that's what social media has done. It's taught us to see ourselves through the eyes of other people and so we work on making sure that smile is right and that wrinkle is gone and that hair is combed just correctly and that the vacation photos show the very best moments of the vacation and that our lives look at their very peak and we're just not made to process this much information as a people and we need to return to the roots. How do we do that? I didn't intend to go down that 10-minute road right there. And so maybe, maybe that is where the Holy Spirit would have us build off of. Maybe that becomes our foundation stone a little bit for this. Well, I think that the solution involves injecting the hermeneutic key into any text that we read. So if Psalms becomes your prayer manual, inject the hermeneutic key to Psalms into the text. And what's, what's the hermeneutic key? Jesus. 
Christ becomes the centerpiece hermeneutic key to every story in the Old Testament so that if Christ fits into the story, makes his way into the story, the story comes alive. Why? Because it's reached down into the roots of your Christian faith. Otherwise, you might think that your Christian faith has its roots in Judaism. Or you might think that your Christian faith has its roots in Moses. Or has its roots in the Ten Commandments. Or has its roots in performances and lists and regulations and Sabbath and tithes and holy days and festivals and feasts. You might think that your roots run into religion and rather than into the man, Christ Jesus. But if Christ could become the hermeneutic key, then the story runs deep into Christ or it doesn't run at all. Which then allows you, as you read the story, where you can't find Jesus, you become liberated to move on to the next story. Let me, let me say that a little cleaner. You're reading your Bible, and you're reading those Old Testament stories, and you're, you're reading the Daniels, and the Shadrach, and the Meshach, and the Abednego's, and the Davids, and the Goliaths, and the Noahs, and all of those stories. And where you can see Christ, then the story has root in you and can say something to you. Where you can't see Christ, change stories. I, I don't mean try to squeeze a principle into the story. If you can get a principle out of the story, great. But if that's all we have, we don't have a faith. We have a book of principles. We have like the, the, the ultimate best-selling self-help book. And that's how many of us are treating the Bible as the ultimate best-selling self-help book. That if you could just apply these principles to your marriage and your kids and your job and your money and your mind and your body, oh, well, look at that. You'd come out on top. Things would be better if you just did it that way. And that doesn't need a crucified, descended, resurrected, and ascended Christ. That doesn't need death to self. It doesn't need resurrection. It doesn't need recreation. It just needs principled living. And we're better than that because our roots run deeper than that. Because we are not merely a people of the story, and then we have a principle out of the story. We are a people of the man, Christ Jesus. And into our stories comes Christ. So maybe as we read the shepherd's psalm, you read it differently, because you know who the good shepherd is. He who dies on behalf of his sheep. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I shall not lack. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Literally, he makes me to lie down in pastures of the most tender grass. He leads me beside the still waters, or as the Hebrew says a little closer, beside the waters of rest. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It went from he to you. There's an intimacy that increases as we get closer to the root. And so we go from a people of he to a people of you. Because we go from a people of God. I, I say this slowly and carefully. We go from a people of God to a people of Christ in us, the hope of glory. You, you see what I mean? We go from a people of God is out there. What can I do to appease God? That as we become intimate with the Father and we listen to his voice, 
And we articulate that deepest part of us. We get honest. We get the whole truth out in our, in our garden, in our growing. As he cleans off the branches and the leaves and he positions us for fruit, we become intimate. The pronoun changes. It isn't just God, he, it becomes you. It's as if halfway through the psalm, God sits down in front of the psalmist. He leads me. You, he, you. Much of our Christianity is he. It's when we re, are reignited by Christ, it becomes you. See, you came to Christ because you. You met him. You were convinced of him. You were infatuated with him. You were blown away with him. You were impressed with him. He loves me, you said. And you walked down an aisle or you prayed a prayer or you went into a baptistry. You did whatever it was you did that was your moment, but you didn't get it through knowledge and wisdom and philosophy and principles. You got it through a radical revelation of the intimacy of the person of Jesus, not the corporation of heaven. Not, the, not just God as a distant he, but Jesus as a you. There he was in, in living color, in, not just in front of your eyes through a sermon, but in your heart as you prayed, as you listened. He transformed from the God of the cosmos to the Jesus who was standing right next to you, who was putting that nail-scarred hand in your hand and walking you down that aisle and all of those, all of those church statements. But in reality, it was real. It wasn't a big old pronoun of he out there. It was you in front of me. This is what, we, this is what we've left and what we've lost when he becomes the distant God and he ceases to be the you, Jesus. He leaves me, but you prepare a table before me. You're with me, verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me or chase me. I like one, one translation. I think even says directly from the Hebrew Surely goodness and mercy will hunt me down. I like that. All the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I feel a little overwhelmed tonight at the magnitude, as I stand in front of you, at the magnitude of this song. I like, I'm, and I'm, I'm serious. I don't, this is the place I don't, this is the place I take the most serious of anything in the world. It's right here in this moment. Because this is the moment when lives are changed. They're impacted because you, you slip the veil. And that's really what we get to do. You slip the veil. And what we, 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 we run the risk of slipping the veil and stepping in front of it. And then it's about us and our ministry, and our church, and our stuff. But if we slip the veil and we put forth the, the Jesus, Psalm 23 doesn't exist in a vacuum. None of them do, but they're not all chronological. Some of it's a hodgepodge. Sometimes maybe Moses wrote it. Sometimes maybe David wrote it. Sometimes maybe Asaph wrote it. Sometimes maybe Solomon wrote it. Sometimes we don't know who wrote it. Sometimes we're just guessing. 
They're all over the map. They're all over the place. Lament, praise, worship, suffering, pain, crying, glorifying God, prophetic. But every now and then, they're not hodgepodge. Every now and then, they're strategically placed by the Holy Spirit. And to catch it, you got to watch because he doesn't put big flashing lights up in the text. This is the beauty of Bible study. There's no big flashing lights in your Bible study, but the more you see Jesus, the more the Bible study starts to unveil on where we might need to go next. Psalm 23 sits naturally enough after Psalm 22. I just wanted to make sure we were still... I've been talking a lot. You've been listening a lot. It's easy to drift. I understand. Basic counting, Psalm 23 follows Psalms 22, but what's most important about the fact that Psalm 23 follows Psalm 22 is that Psalm 22 might stand out as the most important psalm in front of the most famous psalm. If Psalm 23 is the most famous psalm, I'll give you that. Lord is my shepherd. Don't get much better than that. It's a great prayer. It's a great song. It's a great study, but Psalm 22 stands as a highlight as to why Psalm 23 matters. And I think if we could go back to the understanding that John 10, Jesus called himself a good shepherd that gives his life for sheep, we would realize that any time we're going to talk about this good shepherd and we're going to insert him into the psalm and what I would call tonight the shepherd within the psalm, because that's what we're trying to do is put the shepherd into the shepherd's psalm. If it's about him, and needs to have him in it. He can't get there without Psalm 22. And I don't mean you can't get to 23 without 22, of course. But I mean, theologically, you can't get to 23 without 22. Verse 1 of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? I hope the first part of verse 1 sounded pretty familiar. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or in or in uh, Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Lamach Sabathani. Jesus cre- screams this out from the cross. Translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, you've heard me say a lot of this before. If you've watched our ministry, follow my ministry. If you've read our book, Between the Pieces, I do a whole chapter on Psalm 22. So I'm not up here to give you verse by verse, blow by blow, exegetical recounting of Psalm 22. But I just want to make sure we understand something very important about what happens in this psalm. And to do that, let's start with what doesn't happen in this psalm, okay? Jesus screams, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in what is probably the most misunderstood single moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because hanging on the cross, when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, what we have done is we've used that as evidence that if you ever feel forsaken by God, you're not alone. Even Jesus felt like he was forsaken by God. And you know what? That's about as far as in the natural I'll go with that, is that perhaps there's a feeling. Okay, I'll give you that, but I can't go any further with it because I do not for a moment believe that at Calvary, God abandoned his son so he could die in isolation. Because in reality, if God abandoned Jesus to die in isolation, why wouldn't he abandon you to die in isolation? Jesus doesn't die at Calvary isolated from his father, but Jesus starts to sing on the cross Eloi, Eloi, Lamach, Sabathani. And as the first notes come out of his mouth, 
in a culture in which people learned their theology through song. Everyone at the foot of the cross would have recognized the song he's singing if they were raised Jewish because they were raised singing these 150 psalms. And what they would have realized as they sang this song is verse 7. All those who see me shoot out the lip. They shake their head and say, he's trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And standing at the foot of the cross were people who looked up at the cross according to the gospels and said, have him have his father, his God deliver him from this cross. They also would have known that as the song goes on, it gets to verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. And you brought me to the dust of death. And they would have watched as the soldiers put a sponge into wine and lifted it up at the cross for a Jesus whose mouth had grown so dry, he screams out on Calvary's cross, I thirst. And they would have remembered that in Psalm 22, whoever started the song by saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, eventually gets so thirsty. And then they would have remembered this line from verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They look and stare at me and they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And they would have known that in their song somebody has something happened to their hands and something happened to their feet and somebody nearby gambles for their clothing. And they would have watched as nails went into his hands and nails went into his feet and the Roman soldiers gambled for the outer garment of Jesus rather than tear it in half. And most importantly, they would have remembered verse 24. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. And that would have taught everyone at the foot of the cross that God was not turning his back on his son. God was not standing in darkness so that the light wouldn't strike his son. Because we love to say things theologically like God is too holy to look upon sin. And when Jesus became sin at the cross, God was too holy to look at Jesus. So God had to turn away from Jesus. And that leaves the impression with people that every time they sin, God turns away from them because God's not able to look upon sin. If God wasn't able to look upon sin, he would have never got a look at you. And he would have never got a look at me. And we'd still keep finding ways for him to turn his face. Because we'd still keep finding ways to sin. And what the crowd knew that day was that Jesus was not crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he thought God had forsaken him. But so that they would go back and sing that song again and get to the line that mattered the most. He did not turn his face from me. And maybe they would get to this line from verse 31. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this, or as it sounds in another translation, that he has finished. And just before Jesus dies, he says, it is finished, so that he bookends his time on the cross with Psalms chapter 22, verse 1, and Psalms chapter 22, verse 31, so that everyone standing there that day would know 
that God was in Christ. Paul grabs this in 2 Corinthians 5 and says this, God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. God wasn't away from the cross. God was at the cross. God wasn't watching the cross. God was dying on the cross. God wasn't offering, God wasn't killing his son so he wouldn't kill you. God was stepping into our death, the death that we would both have put on us and the death that we would put on God. And God steps into it and takes it into himself so that heaven meets earth at Calvary and God steps into the thing that every single one of us will eventually step into But so that for everyone who will have faith in his name, they can step into it knowing Jesus has stepped in already. And this is why for 2,000 years our root system are a people unafraid to die. Are a people who face death. I don't mean we run headlong into it, but we face it with the knowledge that it is not the end. And I think maybe it is like C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce. For those who place faith in Christ, they get home only to realize that this was the beginning of heaven. And for those who don't place faith in Christ, maybe they go to the other side and realize that this was simply the beginning of their hell. Whatever that looks like. If Psalm 22 is the suffering Savior, then it's Christ crucified, died, and buried. And if Psalm 23 is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, then Psalm 22 is the laying down of the life so that Psalm 23 can be the resurrected reality of who we now serve in Christ, so that the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want, is not simply God over there giving me stuff so that I don't have anything else I need, but rather it's God in here living out of me from the place of my need and my want and my hope and my faith so that I've already stepped into the death he exacts so that I can step out into the life of God. If not, then we're left with the argument of the deist. We're left with the Hermann Remerises of the world, early 18th century German philosopher. Remerus was the man who probably kicked off the quest for the historical Jesus that continued all the way through even to this day, there are still adherents to the Remerus and the Schweitzer school of searching for the Jesus of the Bible. The historical Jesus, not the faith Jesus, not faith in the crucified and resurrected Christ, but did that man next to the Sea of Galilee actually live? And if he did, why was he so disappointed when he died in a God that had forsaken him? And what you end up with in that argument is a Jesus who was a good Jewish boy who slowly got radicalized 
into thinking that the kingdom was about to come and the world was about to end. And then when it didn't, he hangs at the cross, having convinced himself that God would deliver him, but now dies depressed. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then his disciples make up a story about him resurrecting. And the whole early church rallies around Paul, who shifts the message away onto faith and away from Judaism, and what you end up with is a Jesus who was not divine and a rank anti-Semitic Christianity. So you have a decision to make. Was Jesus a man who walked the shores of Galilee and thought the world was about to end and that he was the Redeemer and then died hopeless without having that fulfilled? Or was the kingdom Jesus was talking about not a kingdom like Caesar's Rome, but a kingdom like the Sermon on the Mount? And that in him he knew it wasn't on its way, but it was already here. And that in dying on the cross, he wasn't asking God, why have you forsaken me? He was asking his countrymen to go back to their songbook so that they could see that God had already designed everything that was happening in front of them so that the cross could be reframed not as a defeat but as a success so that Calvary could go from being where a loser dies at the hands of the emperor to being where the victor becomes the victim voluntarily so that empire implodes from the inside out and that nothing keeps you from advancing on a God away from he and becoming you. So that God isn't just some impersonal big thing, but God is my personal Father. And if all of that, if we can land on that, and I know I'm in a house that lands there, and almost everywhere I go is a house that lands there, and yet we have these little peripherals in our theology that don't sound like the Jesus that died buried and was resurrected, that sound more like a Jesus who died confused and alone. And this peeks its little head up in our terrible eschatologies. And it peeks its little head up in our salvation stories that demand moral codes and it peaks its little head up in our nationalistic tendencies where we want to vote in the right and vote out the left. And I'm not talking about political parties, but we want to vote in what is high moral and vote away what is low moral. And what we end up with is a Jesus who wears a flag and votes a certain way and has a strict moral code that must be adhered to, and we don't have a Jesus that looks at the adulterous woman and says, neither do I condemn thee, now go and sin no more. And we don't have a Jesus who refuses to take sides between a battle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and we don't have a Jesus who won't kick out the Matthews, the tax collectors, the harlots, and the sinners, but will eat with them anyway because he says the righteous don't need a physician, but the sick do. We have to be very careful because we all frame Jesus in our way anyway. We do. We can't help it. It's my, it's my prayer 
constantly when I'm trying to see Jesus say, I'm going to accidentally frame him to look like I want him to look. All right? So, Father, I'm not asking for you to revolutionize the way I see Jesus. I'm asking you to help me to see me right first. Because if I could see me right first, and I don't mean me in the right. I mean me correctly. Let me see the real me. Because if I can see the real me, then I'm on my way to redemption. Because then I can go looking for the Jesus that would do something to the real me. Because otherwise, I'm already in the right, and all i got to do is build a Jesus that looks like me. But if I can see the real me, then I can't lie to myself that all of that's Jesus. Is there grace in this? Because I'm, I'm in grace circles that don't want to hear anything about what you should do or any works or any ought to's or any introspection. Because if you do any of that, well, that's performance. Well, they would have hated following Jesus. Who was constantly introspecting in the light of the love of his father. And you go, well, I know Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. Jesus hadn't raised from the dead yet. Yes, but this Jesus, alive and well in the Gospels, speaks in us exactly what he spoke alive and well in the Gospels. How do I know? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, which means Jesus hasn't changed what he says. So if Jesus said something then, Jesus says the same thing now. What does all of this matter? Well, let's go back to Psalm 23. Jesus is my good shepherd. I don't have any needs. Am I okay in saying Jesus? Well, maybe we could at least think about it. The Lord is Jehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your text. Jehovah's covenant God. It's the God who keeps covenant with his people. Jesus on the night of his passion, takes bread, tears it, hands it across to his disciples, takes a cup and hands it across to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body broken for you, take, drink, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Whose blood? Jesus' blood. What covenant? New covenant. Is Jesus a covenant giver and a covenant keeper? Yes. Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why not? He's a covenant Jesus. All right? He's not just a covenant God. By the way, there is no difference in the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the Gospels. Anything you see, I know this is, this is shaky ground, so I'm going I'm to step carefully. Anything you see in the Bible, and you walk away and go, man, God sure does look different here than Jesus does here. That's man's lens, man's idea. It isn't God. How do I know? Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John opens with, in the beginning was the Word, words with God, Word was God. In him is light and the life of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. What's the verse right next to that? He goes, no man hath seen God at any time. But we beheld 
His glory full of grace and truth. The only begotten of God. What's John saying? No one knows what God looks like until Jesus came. And then we knew what God looked like. Let me start over with that. Not the whole thing, just that last part. Because if you need a if you need bumper sticker theology, here you go. We love bumper sticker theology. If you need bumper sticker theology, here you go. No one knew what God looked like until Jesus showed up. And if you look at Jesus, now you know what God always looked like. So it's not Jesus going, you know, my dad used to do some really crazy stuff. (laughs) I mean, you know, I had a talk with him before I left, and I said, now we're not going to be able to do things the same way. When I get down there, if we've been doing them here, we're going to have to change things. Because believe it or not, that's actually how we preach Jesus a lot of times. God was doing all this stuff because God hates sin and it's old covenant. God's forced to do this kind of bad stuff. And then comes Jesus and God softens up because Jesus becomes a substitute for us. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God always will look like. So if you've got a theology where Jesus is going to get on a horse and come back someday and grab some atomic bombs and blow up two-thirds of the earth until most of the world is a crispy critter, and you say he's going to do it because that's God showing his retribution, judgment, and wrath against sin, then I need you to give me some verses where Jesus killed some people while he was here. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. Today and forever. Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. I didn't go fast because they're not important. I went because I want you to watch the direction of verses 2 and 3. Makes me, leads me, restores me, leads me. He's always out in front. Or he's got his hand in the small of my back. Okay, So he's either out in front of me going, come here. Or he's right behind me making me. By making me, not whip. It's just make like the shepherd with sheep. You know, like a shepherd has to kind of reach down and go, hey, come here. Get over here. That, that come here, get over here is not massive discipline, you know, hand of God breaking necks. But it's the good shepherd leading the sheep. Leading, leading, making. So he leads me to green grass, and he leads me to still waters, not rushing water, still water so I can drink it without being scared. Green grass so, I, so my soul is restored. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then in verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And there's a sharp left turn in the middle of the psalm. Because God's been leading you to grass, leading you to water, leading you to food, leading you in paths of righteousness. But then in verse 4, yea, though I walk. Yea, though. Rebuttal. Even though sometimes I walk into the valley of the shadow of death tells me that he didn't lead me there. He led me to green grass, and he led me to still waters, and he led me in the paths of righteousness. He didn't lead me into the valley of the shadow of death because he doesn't lead me into the valley of the shadow of death. But life does. Right? Life sometimes leads me into the valley of the shadow of death. Life leads me into dark chaos. Sometimes it overwhelms me. It's over my head. I don't turn and blame my shepherd that I've ended up in the valley. I turn and look for my shepherd now that I'm in the valley. 
And we have to present a gospel where people in chaos feel welcome to come into the house of sheep, not worried about getting beat up because they brought their chaos with them, but rather able to find a shepherd while they're there that will love them in the middle of their chaos. Because even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid of evil because Jesus is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. His rod and his staff don't beat me half to death. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. So Jesus is not taking his rod and his staff and smacking me. Any of you ever use that old evangelistic illustration? Sometimes. And we get real dramatic with it. Sometimes. You're walking down the road of life. You're just a little lamb. And you wander off the trail and slide down into the ravine. And the shepherd takes his great big hook of a staff. And he hooks it up underneath your little shoulders. And he pulls you back up on the path. And he pushes you on your way. And then one day you're walking down the path. And you wander off the other side. And the shepherd takes his big old hook and Anybody? Did anybody use this? I used I used the fire out of this on people. This was my go-to illustration for getting people to live right. And after you do it about three times, get the tension up in the room. You go, and then that little sheep. One day you wander off. And he reaches that hook down there and he pulls you up. And when he gets you up next to him, he snaps your little leg and the whole crowd goes, oh. he snaps your leg and then he sets it like a loving shepherd and he puts a little tourniquet on it and he wraps he wraps it up in his in his gauze of compassion and then he opens up that shepherd's robe and he puts you up next to his heart And he puts his arm over your back so you can hear the heartbeat of Jesus. And and he loves you back into fellowship. Oh, I used it. Man, I'm telling you, I used that. I'd get all teary-eyed and dramatic. Okay. You're going to wander off the path into the valley of the shadow of death. I do promise you your shepherd's going to chase you. That's his job. He loves you. You go, he goes. You go down, he goes down. You go into darkness, he goes into darkness. I, I would follow it up by saying that sometimes you're going into places where the Holy Spirit will stay in the car. You think the Holy Ghost is going to go in that place? I'm telling you, if you pull into that parking lot and go in that building, the Holy Ghost will still be in the car when you come out because God's not going to put up with that sin. And I'd have people, you just feel like there's such a separation between you and God. And I wanted you to feel that way, you heathen. I wanted to scare you. I was like, get right with God because I'd be like, that's my job. I'm not going to stand before God and not have done my best to scare these people into heaven. I'm the one has got to put up with God saying, you didn't do your job, so if they get a little mad at me, too bad. That's how a lot of people still present the gospel, which is supposed to be good news, but all that's terrible news. 
Now, I do believe if you go off the trail, he will come down into the valley and he'll with you. But his rod and his staff are not to be used against you. They're to be used at whatever's against you. Okay? I will say this. I've, I've, I've had an addendum to this in my spirit. I do believe that sometimes he picks you up. And he's noticed you've been limping. And he recognizes that you hurt yourself on your journey and your limbs were set wrong. Your limbs were set to performance and an angry God and guilt. And it's affected your walk. And I do believe that a good doctor knows how to look you in the eye and go, keep, keep eye contact with me. We're going to break this back. Because it's been set wrong. And I do very much believe that the great physician retains the right to point out to you where your limp is a result of where you've had a misconception about God. And to say to you, let's wrestle this out. I'm going to snap that leg. We're going to start over. I'm going to set it right. And I think that looks like abuse and pain and sorrow and heartache and abandonment and a bunch of stuff I don't even want to put words to. You understand what I mean? And we've got a bad perception of God. Yea, though I walk through the valley, your rod and your staff comfort me. I want to, I want to land here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Let me tell you the whole reason I preach this message tonight. I've been reinvestigating Jesus again. I've been watching Jesus in the Gospels. I just did a whole series a couple of summers ago on the Sermon on the Mount. It was tough. It was a tough series for me to teach. Not because the material was daunting, but because the requests were the constitution of the kingdom, and I've gotten so used to the constitution of religion. The constitution of religion is do good, get good, and a bunch of rules and regulations. The constitution of religion sometimes gets to borrow the techniques of the system of the world. Let me give you an example, because people should get what they deserve, especially if they're bad, right? If you do bad, you should pay. And we kind of like that one. And so we bring that over into the church, and we go, well, that one's holy, because sometimes, sometimes... People got to get what's coming to them. And I got to the part in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus in Matthew 5, 44 goes, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you. If a man smites you on the cheek, turn to him the other one also. If a man bids you to carry his load one mile, carry it voluntarily two miles. And I went, you know, I like the Jesus that says go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. I like the Jesus that feeds the 5,000 with kids lunch. But the Jesus that tells me to love my enemies might be taking this love people a little too far. The reason I'm on this tonight is because Psalm 23, 5 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. But I'm preaching the shepherd into the psalm. And if you put the shepherd into the psalm, Jesus reimagines this verse. He no longer lets you pray, God, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He now says you are to prepare a table for your enemies. 
That's the way of the shepherd. It's not just that I get you to prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies so that everybody can see how good God is to me and then they'll get jealous and want to get saved because they can see that God's good to me even when they're bad to me. And that just is tinted with a little too much me and not near enough loving somebody else. And that's my first hint. And this is what I told you. If you want to get down to the real Jesus, ask to see the real you. Oh, there he is, standing somewhere in the shadows. He's nearby the real you, and it's in the real you that you get to see how Jesus reacts to you, and Jesus is calling us out, going, you want to pray good shepherd? I'm in it. I am your good shepherd. We, you don't just sit back and wait for me to put a table in the presence of your enemies. You feed the 5,000. Remember, by the way, that was Jesus' first command when he found out there were 5,000 people that needed to eat. What did he say to his disciples? You feed them. And the disciples went, well, we ain't got that kind of food. And Jesus goes, well, go buy it. And they go, we ain't got that kind of money. This is classic us, by the way. <laughs> this is classic us when we go to God and God goes, you want to see what Jesus looks like? Let me sh- let's see the real you. you. You go buy it for him. Well, you don't. Excuse, excuse. And then, by God's grace, Jesus steps in and goes, Got anybody with some food? Little boy. Bread and fishes. Multiply. Does this miracle. Teaching me that my role is not to wait for God to prepare good things for me in front of my enemies. My role is to find my enemy. And prepare good things for them. Surely goodness and mercy shall hunt me down all the days of my life. Goodness that we like. Why mercy? Listen, I want to leave you with this thought. God's design for you in your walk is not that you will live perfect or sinless. If that was the end game, he would need to hunt you down with mercy. He's hunting you down with mercy. Because he knows you're going to wander into the valley of the shadow of death and you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to sin. And it's not a green light to go live however hellish way you want to unless you just want to keep sliding down ravines and breaking legs. Then by all means, sin like crazy. I mean, really. I mean, if you want to live hell and chaos, then go sin like crazy. What will God do to me? He'll walk right into your sin. Wherever you are, He doesn't wait in the car. He goes right in. And he'll hold your hand. You go, will he approve of it? If you... We are the ones obsessed with the doing in the presence of God. He is obsessed with our being. You see, I don't obsess myself with what my kids do. I love my kids regardless of what they do. And so do you. They are not, we go to our kids, you're a good kid. We don't mean you're good because you never do anything wrong. Because if you said that, then you're lying. You mean you're good. I mean, you want to know why I say to my son and daughter you're good? Because they're mine. Straight up. That's it. I don't say it to your kids. Your kids might be little devils. I don't know. I'm not going to go up and lie to your kids. <laughs> you kids are good. I don't know. They're not good. A couple of heathens. I hope you know what I'm doing there. 
is I can't not love them like you love them. So you better love them. Because ain't nobody else going to love them like you do. Now imagine how your father feels. He looks at you and goes, I got to love him. Because ain't nobody going to love him like I love him. So man, I'm going to love him. And if he wanders, I'm going to chase him. And I'm going to hunt him down with mercy. I'm going to hunt him down with mercy. I'm not going to hunt him down with judgment. I'm going to hunt him down with mercy. You want to know how to pray for your enemies? Ask God to be merciful to them. If that's tough for you, time to insert the shepherd into your psalm. Mercy on them. Where I hope your foot falls is right here. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. John chapter 2, Jesus goes into the temple and he clears the temple. I know I've went a long time. It's Friday night. I'm, I'm, spending, I'm wasting your time. I'm, I'm, I'm going to land right here, okay? This time I promise. The other times I was straight up lying to you. <laughs> John chapter 2, Jesus goes into the temple and he clears the temple. That probably actually happens at the end of his ministry. We know it happens at the end of his ministry because it happens on Passion Week. But in John, he puts it up near the front. It's an interesting thing. I don't have time to get into why, but it's pretty cool. The reason I use John's version is because Jesus then turns to the crowd that is assembled and he says, tear this temple down in three days, I'll rebuild it. Now that statement gets brought back at his trial. Okay? They bring that back at his trial because... They bring that up in front of Pilate, and they go, this guy, this guy advocated tearing the temple down. That's as worse as you can get in the Jewish vernacular. This guy advocated tearing the temple down, said he could rebuild it in three days. John throws in a little commentary in John chapter 2. He says, he spake this concerning his own body. But notice that when Jesus talked about his body, he talked about his temple. So for Jesus to resurrect three days after the cross was to build a temple. Paul comes along in Ephesians and says, fivefold ministry is supposed to come along to support the church so that the church grows up to support the head. The head is Christ. And then he gets to Ephesians 5 and he goes, husbands, love your wives, even as you love your own body, because no one hates his own body, so love your own self as Christ loves his church. Jesus said, if you knock the temple down, I'll rebuild in three days. Paul said, the body of Christ is you. Jesus has rebuilt his house. Where? John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And my father's house... There are many mansions. I'm going to go prepare them for you, and I'm going to come again, and I'm going to receive you unto myself. And the word he uses there in the Greek is in my father's house. There are many monae. There are many rooms. There are many abodes. And later in the chapter, he goes, if you love my father, my father and I love you, and we'll make our house inside of you. When Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go away, I'll prepare. I'll come again, you receive you to myself. He wasn't saying, I'm going to go away and build houses in heaven and then come back someday and get you. He was saying, I'm going to go away to the cross and you're going to miss me for a few days. But I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to disappear. 
and I'm going to reappear in you. How do you know this, Pastor Paul? Because Paul says the mystery that has been shut up from the ages but hath been revealed unto us through the Gentiles is this Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ has built his... When, when, when the psalm says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that is fulfilled prophecy in the resurrected Christ. Every day of your life, you dwell in the house of the Lord. And here's good news. How long is it going to last? Forever. Forever. Father, you're good. Thank you. Father, tonight I've had a lot of fun with your kids. I only barely know them. I love them about as much as you, I can love them for how little I know them. But I am overwhelmed tonight by how much you love them. I hope they're overwhelmed too. Father, I have not tried to inspire a philosophical revelation of Jesus tonight. I have hoped to begin the seed of a spiritual revelation of Jesus tonight. That you reveal yourself to them in Jesus. Where it is cloudy, where things were not clear, forgive me. That was me. Where it shines brightly, where all eyes are on Jesus, where our hearts burned within us when he spoke with us by the way, let's remember that. The Lord is our shepherd. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.